what I like to point out is that the, the rise of homosexuality as a disease in the 19th century, I think that's been covered by many people. Um, it, 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 obviously, same-sex behavior has existed forever, everywhere. Uh, and the penises against penises and vaginas against vaginas and you know all of that the, the the behaviors have been around forever hi this is andrew so as some of you might know i've been such a fan of the gay and lesbian review bi-monthly magazine of history culture and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column. Did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited because I'm joined with another fellow Gay and Lesbian Review contributor. We had Ignacio Darnad on in the fall, breaking the gay code in art. And this time we're entering the world of psychiatry, which I'm excited for the walls to come down in psychiatry. And I'm here with Vernon Rosario, who is a historian of science and an associate professor of psychiatry at UCLA. So I'm trying to live vicariously through you, Vernon, pretending I'm in LA right now since it's a little chilly here on uh, New York. But welcome to the show, Vernon. I am so happy that you're here today. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. So I'm just curious to begin with, how did you enter the world of psychiatry? What was Vernon's journey of deciding, oh yes, this is what I wanna spend my time, my education to delve into the medical field of psychiatry? Well, I had started med school, not interested in psychiatry, but in neurology, the other brain aspect. Um, and actually was planning to do a PhD in neuroscience. Um, but when I started medical school, I really hated medical school. It was boring. Um, and I had just come from a year abroad in Paris. 
which is where I'd actually come out. And I just wanted to go back to France. Or I really wanted to go back to a certain person in France. But that was pointless because he had moved on a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I just come out, it's love, like, oh, I figured everything out. Um, so instead, I um, got some travel grants to go back to Paris for that summer after the first year of medical school. And that first year also I did an elective in psychiatry at Mass General. And that's when I became interested in psychiatry more than the brain side of things. Um, with just a personality fit with other psychiatrists at the MGH and the kind of work and um, even if it was inpatient work, uh, we, as a medical student, we got to spend a lot of time talking to patients and had really interesting patients. And I thought, like, you know, this is it's more what I could like to do. Um, and then the summer I went back to Paris, um, discovered Eric had moved on from me. Uh, <laughs> and instead had a research project at the Bibliothèque Nationale on the history of medieval mental illness and diet books. Um, so I was looking at these you know, diet books um, that were in Old French and Latin. Um, and honestly, I put together this, this funding request knowing nothing about the history of medicine. I'd never taken a history class in my life, but it just seemed interesting. And who else was going to work on ancient medieval diet books about mental illness? Um, and so that's when I actually discovered the history of medicine, history of psychiatry, read a lot of Michel Foucault, um, and really became interested in the history of medicine. And when I came back to medical school for the second year, I was going to drop out. The dean of students convinced me like, no, we need people like you in medicine. Um, give us another year. Um, and in the meantime, I applied to graduate programs in French and also in history of science, which is what I ended up doing. And I stayed at Harvard for a PhD in history of science in between the first two years of medical school and came back for the last two years of medical school. Wow. Um, but did not plan on continuing clinical work that really wanted to do history work. And in that PhD time is when, so this is in the late 80s, gay and lesbian studies was taking off. There had been three conferences on gay and lesbian studies organized by John Boswell at Yale. Um, and I stupidly volunteered to organize a third one at Harvard in 1990, which was an enormous amount of work, but really introduced me to everybody who was involved in gay and lesbian studies in that time. Um, all the books that were being published by Rutledge. Um, and that's sort of how I ended up editing that uh, anthology on science and homosexualities. Um, yeah. 
the first ever anthology, right? For medical sex, for medical sexuality conversations. Well, homosexuality. Homosexuality. A lot of work in the history of sexuality earlier. Um, But really, it was an interesting time because gay and lesbian studies was becoming more mainstream-ish. I mean, and and in large part, thanks to John Boswell and being at Yale. And the truth is, I didn't even realize it wasn't mainstream because... Well, and for everyone out there, John Boswell was so, I mean, I was first introduced to really gay and lesbian studies from his Christianity and homosexuality text. And I think sadly he passed away Mm -hmm. at such a young age, but he had put out this prolific book. I mean, but you actually were part of his cohort or not cohort, but part of his atmosphere of gay and lesbian scholars. What was that like to bring us back to those? Was that the early 80s or? Um, So he, yeah, so he was working in the early 80s, late 80s. Um, He started organizing these conferences. I spoke at two of them. Um, And there were a lot of, senior people who were basically coming out within the academy and starting to do gay and lesbian work. And I have to say there had been uh, several decades of people in like the Journal of Homosexuality publishing scientific articles, psychological articles, history articles, social science articles. Um, But a lot of these people were independent scholars. So there were independent scholars doing this work like um, Chauncey on Gay New York, who'd been working independently for a lot of time. Um, and, and then there were young people like me who just didn't know any better that that would going to be the kiss of death <laughs> for an academic job. Well, yeah, can you open up about so you felt that pressure that I'm assuming of why I give you so much respect, Vernon, and anyone that I get to talk to who is of an older generation, you don't have to say your age, but you know, um, I'm a millennial and I think it's to pay our dues to those prolific gay and lesbian queer scholars who really set the stage. I mean. I, I wouldn't have the literary and historical genealogy without your generation of scholarship. And how did it feel to know that you were taking up such important topics around gay and lesbian studies, but then seeing what how academia was reacting to you? Did you feel that there was that judgment right away, knowing what you were working on? Honestly, it didn't feel problematic at the time. I, I, I was clueless because I didn't, I didn't come from a very academic background and really wasn't thinking strategically. This was just an exciting area. There are clearly a lot of people doing interesting work, like, like every area in academe. Um, but it was, 
you know, charged with political importance. The AIDS crisis was still really on our minds. Um, there was interesting work in on AIDS scholarship. Um, the whole queer nation was just popping out in the early 90s. Um, so there was, you know, a whole area of queer studies that, that was new then, um, queering the academy, queering all other disciplines, queering Egyptology, queering car mechanics and Zen, I don't know, anything you want, you could queer. Um, so it's a, a very exciting, creative time, politically charged. Um, and for the most part, I felt like I had a lot of support. At Harvard, I got support organizing the conference um, from the dean's office. Uh, we had financial support. I mean, it, it, it felt almost sort of mainstream and legitimate in the little bubble, uh, although it wasn't really. Um, and in part, I think it because there were these senior people who already were tenured and were starting to do interesting work and it was welcoming and really very quickly it became much more mainstream. I mean, I mean like in a decade, two decades. Um, and, you know, so now there are gay and lesbian studies minors at US, UCLA and other places and um, usually gender and sexuality studies departments and programs and uh, in the, actually the debate initially was you know do we create special gay and lesbian gay lesbian bi gay lesbian trans programs or departments or specialties or do we push for sexuality to just be a part of every discipline which is the same kind of debate that happened with um, race studies, with ethnic studies, with women's studies. You know, do we make our women's studies department or do we make gender an issue for the mainstream history department, for art history, for every department? <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, 
We just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our, in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So, enjoy your reading, everyone. Yeah, do we intersperse it throughout departments for representation purposes or go in the more um, creating its own discipline, which comes with its own? I mean, either way, right, you're going to face um, obstacles in all of academia. Um, And I think, thank you for laying the history and the genealogy out. I mean, I'm so invested in... LGBT studies genealogy. And I mean, I love Robert K. Martin's literary work because I'm a Whitman homoerotic poetic scholar. And I mean, and I'm also into, I don't know if you um, follow um, John D'Amelio, Martin Duberman. I mean, to know that you probably had so many conversations, Eve Sedgwick, Judith Butler. that at one time they were PhD students. Um, And looking back though, what fascinated me, so Vernon wrote in 1999, Rise and Fall of the Medical Model for the Gay and Lesbian Review. And this is the 50th anniversary of the DSM um, declassifying, well, I'll have you fully explain it, but basically, at the root, just depathologizing homosexuality as a mental illness. Um, And this was a really long fight that was happening within psychiatric circles. But as a historian of science as well, I'm assuming it's it's not very common for you to be a psychiatrist and also a scholar of science. Like this doesn't always go hand in hand. I mean, are there many of you who have a PhD and an MD? Um, PhDs in history, not as many. Obviously, many PhDs in science areas. Um, we're a little little cluster of MD PhDs in history. Um, yeah. So, what? Um, and also, I should ask too, for all of our listeners. Um, psychology, so psychology is the study of the self, but I was always, and I might, 
be naive in this, but I always thought psychiatry, it's similar, except you can prescribe medication, but I know there's more to it than that. So can you just, you know, explain to all of us, Vernon, what really is psychiatry's claim to fame? Well, that's that's good enough. If if people can keep that distinction in mind, I'm happy <laughs> because psychologists, psychiatrists all get mixed up in most people's minds. I think um, so. We're psychiatrists are trained MDS, and it's a profession that's fairly new. It's probably newer than psychology, really, um, and developed out of alienology, people who took care of alienated, insane people in asylums. Um, so that's where the APA grew out of a, an association of superintendents of insane asylums. Um, and it was sort of part of neurology. And that's why I'm board certified in the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Um, and so it really develops a, as a distinct profession only at the turn of the century. So it's in some ways the same as the same history of the rise of homosexuality as a psychiatric mental health phenomenon. Most of the people in the 19th century who were writing about homosexuality, who were creating this notion of a disease of homosexuality, were neurologists. Uh, Freud, of course, also trained as a neurologist. He wanted oh, okay. to research in neurology, but he was told in no unclear terms that as a Jew, he would not have an academic career in neuroscience or neurology. So he went to clinical work to be able to keep himself fed and be able to marry. Well, and you draw the history. I mean, I'm sure... Um... You know, and if there's any current or work that had come out since 1999, please uh, scream it uh, on these air on these uh, airwaves right now, and ex plug any other projects that you had published. But I find it so fascinating that you do bring Freud early on in this essay from the Gay and Lesbian Review because. It was how I first got so infatuated with Freud. I mean, I'm really interested in his theory on narcissism, that case study, and that those homosexual tendencies he sees with the narcissist. And Freud, for me, is difficult because um, at one point, he is opening up these conversations. So, and like you say, he's not necessarily... Um, deeply pathologizing specifically homosexual men, like critiquing them. He's not necessarily putting them down, but he's also using them as a case study of aberration. So it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it, it's not like he's recuperating them and it's not like he's necessarily um, stigmatizing them as others were doing in that same period. I mean, how do you find Freud? Like, does Freud still have relevance? That's always a question I know. Psychiatrists will always tell me, we don't even look, read Freud anymore. So why talk about his case studies? I just spent the morning working with the psychiatry residents from Charles Drew University and 
nobody reads Freud. Even the UCLA trainees, they don't read Freud anymore. Psychoanalysis is, I mean, it's a little specialty thing. It's like, it's, a, it's like studying medieval diet books. <laughs> it's obscure. You've got to be really interested in this kind of historical oddity. But I, I'll, I'll get to the Freud part, but I, um, it, what I'd like to point out is that the, the rise of homosexuality as a disease in the 19th century, I think that's been covered by many people. Um, it, 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 obviously, same-sex behavior has existed forever, everywhere, uh, and the penises against penises and vaginas against vaginas, and you know, all of that, the, the, the behaviors have been around forever. Um, the, the question is, how do you label it? What do you call it? What words do you use for it? How do different cultures conceptualize it, whether in religious terms or codify it in terms of, you know, like anti-sodomy laws that we had in the United States until really recently, in my lifetime, um, even in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, or in the 19th century, when they start becoming an interest to doctors. And the, the interesting thing is that the doctors who start becoming interested in sodomy, um, pederasty it's called, um, and prostitution are actually really liberal people. Um, they see the medicalization of sexuality broadly as wresting it from conservative priests and the, the laws that make things criminal offenses. Uh, and thinking of something like prostitution as a public health issue, which in some ways has is a similarity to HIV and IV drug use. Uh, trying to demoralize these issues and see them as public health issues. Uh, and that's led by what we generally call liberal doctors, liberal public health specialty people. And public health is only developing at that time, the early 19th century. And I see it as you know, part of a liberalization. So the odd thing is that even the medicalization of homosexuality, the term only pops up in the late 19th century um, is part of a way of decriminalizing same-sex behavior. But it comes with a lot of strings attached. Um, and so part of it is that it's seen as something that's really a minority and strange issue. Um, and the only way it can make sense is through this model of sexual inversion, that there's a female soul in a male body, or there's something biologically female in the brains or genitals of otherwise male appearing people. But then there are the people uh, who have been in the news now are the George Santos and being a drag queen 
you know, so there were people who cross-dressed and that was known for centuries as well. Um, it, so hmm, those are inverts. And then the same on the female appearing side, masculine appearing women, women who, you know, want to do typically male activities, want to work, want to vote, um, want all the rights of men. These are clearly inverted women, have masculine ambitions. There must be something masculine in their psyches, if not their brains. Um, and so that, that sort of sexual inversion model, which could rises up in the middle of the 19th century and is still a term that Freud uses in, nine, in 1905 in the three essays on sexuality. Um, he uses sexual inversion throughout it. Um, and, you know, so when you look back at these 19th century cases, they're really a mishmash of things that, and I, I'd say fairly comfortably, this is what we say is a homosexual today, or this is somebody who really seems more like a cross-dresser for fetishistic reasons. Fetishism also only arises an issue in the late 19th century. Um, or these are people who would probably be transgender by our current conceptions, but they're all seen as one oddity of behavior, presentation, psyche. Um, but for the most part, the, the doctors who are talking about these issues are fairly liberal. They don't want these people, you know, sent to prison. They they get called on as forensic special to specialists in cases of inheritance, where a family wants to condemn Uncle Timmy who cross dresses, and he shouldn't be able to control the family fortune anymore because he's clearly a, a, a criminal and a pervert. Um, that the forensic doctor comes in and says, no, you know, these, these kinds of behaviors are not uncommon and they don't entail any loss of reason. Um, there's no reason to you know, lock these people away. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog 
as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. And scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. So they they see themselves a liberal and they're getting finally back to Freud. Um, you really read his case studies from a present perspective, they don't seem very liberal. Because he's coming up with, as you mentioned, there's a narcissistic model uh, that he's mostly talking about men. Um, you know, men are attracted to men because they're attracted to the same sex, that sort of narcissism. Um, and they're kind of they're mirroring each other's well, desire. You know, rather than yeah. finding attraction in women and the other sex. Um, and then he, at some points, he has a seduction model. They were seduced by the butler, and that's what got them fixated on same sex, or their, their mother was overly stifling, and so they have a female identification because they continue to identify with the mother rather than going through an Oedipal you know, conflict and identifying with the father. He comes up with multiple different explanations for where homosexuality might arise psychodynamically. But in general, it's a result of some deviation in the normal path of sexual development. It's some sort of fixation or rest, it's a different model, but it, it, it's not the normal thing. But on the other hand, like his predecessors, he doesn't see all homosexuals as severely mentally ill, incapable people. Um, and he even argues that they can become analysts um, and argues that there shouldn't be an exclusion on training homosexual analysts, which was something that was very late for the American psychoanalytic to undo. Um, so, you know, it sort of cuts both ways with Freud. Yeah. Well, and what is your theory of why? Because this is something I always ask myself, and I know that there's so many scholars who think about the late Victorian period. Um, like what's important is you explained, it's not just the language around homosexuality starting to become medicalized and in the nomenclature, but it's the medical institution itself and categories and even the university model growing and uh, racial categories starting to become more solidified. So is it because of the rise of capitalism, in your opinion, the middle class needing to really establish these categories to determine who the workers are um like and do you think that um this is definitely not a question that can be answered in one sentence but and i don't want you to but it's just 
it's always astonishing to me. Do you think that these medical categories, especially with what you study in psychiatry, that the rise of the homosexual as a name was helpful? Or do you think that the language that existed before, which was not in a medical sense, was more liberating? Or it depends who you're talking about. We got several. So there's the, the <laughs> Marxist angle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's plenty of Marxist historians who've argued that you know, the, the the professionalization of medicine and the medicalization of society, the rise of biopower in Foucault's terms, um, it, it is part of class development in the 19th century. I mean, it's hard not to see that in some ways because it's the rise of Marxism in the 19th century too, and industrialization and, you know, big shifts in population to the cities. And that's certainly also what makes possible culturally the rise of homosexual cultures, sodomitical cultures, cross-dressing bars in Berlin, Paris, London from the late 18th century on. So because of urbanization that you can have same-sex oriented people meeting each other and organizing, you know, West Hollywood, <laughs> now the village. Um, if you're all on the farm, I mean, there's a lot of same-sex behavior going on, but there's no clubs, there's no way to organize yourself. And it's just me and the barn boy next door doing something. We don't know we're part of a movement or a society. Um, and then your second question about, you know, does the medicalization was it good or bad? I mean, uh, the curious thing again is that you read the case studies, either in the, the journals or in like some big compendium like Craft uh, Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, um, you know, which was sort of this Bible of sexual perversions from the late 19th century grows from a smallish pamphlet of a couple of dozen case studies of oddities to just hundreds of pages and thousands of examples of fetishes and same-sex behavior and cross-dressing. Every sadism, masochism, he coins those terms. Um, and it grows because after the first version of it, people send in their stories. They contribute their own stories. And they are, reading the letter that they sent him, are very eager to be seen as medical phenomena. That this is something that is not an immoral choice. It shouldn't be pursued legally. And people feel it deeply as something ingrained in themselves. It's not a immoral selection. So it again echoes things that we're still discussing today, you know, in, in legal spheres, you know, is homosexuality a choice? 
or not? Is it something that's biological, ingrained, and it, it's as much so as race? Um, so people at the time, people that we'll call homosexuals, um, were in many ways embracing the biologization just as they have in the 1990s. You know, people born this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole the Lady Gaga born this way anthem really fits into that bio biological framework. But and something that I love, and do you have a more expanded version of this article? Like, is this um the rise and fall of the medical model? Um, did it end up in a book project, Vernon? Um, there is there, oh, yeah, yeah, so there's um, similar, Science and Homosexuality, which was a sort of monograph book for ABC Clio. Um, so they publish books that are more geared towards you know, college students and maybe even high school students. Um, so it, it sort of covers the same territory, but in a bigger format with lots of primary source documents and more pictures. Yeah, well, and something that I love that you bring up Alfred Kinsey, which we definitely have to talk about because he now is so well known for the Kinsey scale and a type of sexual fluidity, even though he didn't call it sexual fluidity but um, that there wasn't just a binary of you're either heterosexual or homosexual, that there could be bisexuality, there could be a spectrum. Um, but why, I also reading your article, I'm so, and maybe it's just because of those I'm interviewing here on the show and I get a lot of current queer academics and I'm in this Milu so much, but it seems like World War II, for some reason, is this proliferation of same-sex desire between men in the war. And I'm wondering, is that just because of, well, I'll pose the question to you, Vernon. Why do you think in World War II there is such this um, ground for Kinsey to do his work with all of this male same-sex desire? Well, you, you probably know the history of Kinsey's work. So he he's there in Indiana and he's asked to do a course on sexuality, basically for students who are going to be married. Those are the only ones who are supposed to take his course because it's, you know, it's virginal girls shouldn't be hearing about sexuality. It's only the ones who are going to be married and need to know about sexuality. And when he starts looking into it, he's like, my goodness, there isn't very much actual scientific literature. I mean, he, he was specialized on gall wasps. He didn't know much more about sexuality than anybody else. Um, and so he was determined to gather information in a, a scientific, quantitative way. Um, why in this post-war period in particular? I don't know. Um, 
He just happened to be the right person in the right place at the right time. It's not that I think he, that there were more homosexual then. I'll take that back. Um, I think definitely the war led to a lot of social disruption. You had many women entering into the workforce because men were going off to war. Um, you, of course, had many men in close quarters, developing strong relationships. You had many women now living in cities, working in, in factories, sharing rooms together. Maybe there's more same-sex behavior, same-sex attraction relationships. Um, but there's no reason to think that Kinsey's findings were a particular product of that post-war period. Um, and he gets criticized for saying like, this just is not possible. It's not possible that there's so much same-sex behavior going on. Um, or that there, he brought up the, is the Kinsey scale um, I mean, I don't think it, just after World War II that people's sexuality fell in between. I think that's probably also always been the case. There were men who had sex with men while they were married, and there were women who had intimate relations with other women, although they were married. Um, <laughs> Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends, you've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Do you have a queer fascination with classic films? Ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves? Hi, my name is Christian Garcia, and I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film and peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera and into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema, and I'll be sure to see if you see at our next showing. See you there.
you know, that was probably going on. He's just going about systematically asking people about their sexual behavior and documenting large numbers of it. I mean, the same thing with adultery. Was adultery suddenly a new discovery? Both mm -hmm. World War II? No. He's just going around and finding out like, oh, even married women are engaging in a substantial amount of extramarital affairs. Um, you ask, yeah. you'll find out. Yeah, so there's this whole now, um, well, it kind of gets us actually back to Foucault because Michel Foucault's history of sexuality, he's really in, interested from his philosophical vein about um, the speech act of just talking about sex, right? That's what was so pro provocative about Foucault is he literally brought it into the academy to talk openly about sexual acts and um, or the orgasm or even drawing to bear that this can be a topic of academic inquiry. Um, like which then porn study scholars um, enter the field in the 1970s and onward. And um, now we're in a time of podcasting and there's a show I follow, Sex with Emily, and she takes phone calls from those across America who have sexual health questions. So yeah, I think you're definitely, Vernon, I'm glad you brought that up because there are many questions on um, adults' minds who are invested in sex, right? Sex is a part of a lot of our psyche. Um, so, you know, kind of now going into the current moment, <laughs> we're in 2023. Um, have you found that the field of psychiatry, because you are a professor, you have students, um, I know you have a lot of colleagues that you've encountered over the years. Um, do you find that LGBT psychiatry is in a lot of curriculum or is it still its own, you have to really wanna go into this specific field of study? Um, so when I was in residency in the nineties, I was co-teaching the LGBT series of lectures five for my own fellow residents, along with the volunteer faculty member. Um, and now there are so many more gay and lesbian faculty members at UCLA that I don't even have to do it because there's other people on campus who'll do it. Um, and it, it is so much more mainstream. The residents are, uh, this is like just some of the, something they just need to know and know about and there's nothing awkward about it. Although on the other hand, it is my hobby horse to get the residents and the fellows to get a sexual history from patients mm -hmm. because it's still kind of an awkward thing um, for people. Uh, even though they tell my trainees, your patients expect the psychiatrist to talk about sex. That's the one thing that we own. <laughs> you know? Everybody thinks you're all Freudian, but nobody is, uh, and you're going to be obsessed with sex. So don't worry, they're not going to get weirded out when you ask them about their sexual life. 
yeah. so it is it's something I, I still emphasize very much. But they're very comfortable about having other gay, lesbian, trans colleagues and friends. And, you know, it's just not as difficult an issue as it was 20, 30 years ago. Certainly not the kind of, you know, you, you read in the Gay and Lesbian Review how in psychiatry people were, psychiatrists were totally in the closet, men and women, um, until the, you know, early 70s, late 70s, after the declassification of homosexuality in the DSM. Yeah. So well, it, um, it, it changed an enormous amount. And it's, it's sort of like in the academy, in the humanities, LGBT issues are really mainstream, I think, except Florida, <laughs> you know, where even African-American studies are not mainstream. Well, and I think, too, it depends. Like you've said, there's the hesitation on bringing the topic up for the first time. I mean, I even see that when I teach my students sexual topics in literature, there's that awkward moment of, I will always say, you can talk about sex in the literature here. It is in front of our eyes in poetry or in the novel. Um, but I would say um, it does seem that there still is a, maybe this is just from my own vantage point, but there's still a really sequestered area of um, very explicit discussions of sex, like the adult film industry, or like, I'm not sure, you know, if your psychiatrist was a, an adult film actor, how that would go down. I'm, I'm sure there is a psychiatrist who was in the adult film industry, but like, you know, but I, maybe that would be in any type of industry. Is that openness? But I, maybe that just speaks to our American culture of um, one of the most um, searched and seen is pornography, but for some reason it's uh, a hidden dirty secret in any, in any um, industry that's outside of it, right? That they can be living in your community. But that'll be for when I have a gay porn scholar on, which everyone out there listening, I will have on eventually a gay porn scholar. I think that would be interesting. Um, but, you know, going back. Do you mean? No, go a, ahead, Vernon. A, a scholar who does gay porn or a scholar of gay porn? That's a good <laughs> distinction. I will go for either someone of you know, both on someone who has been in the industry, who has that analytic knowledge or someone who studies it from, I guess, being outside the industry and academia. But I think even better, Vernon, would be someone who was in the industry who then got their PhD along their journey in the industry and now is a professor. So anyone out there, if that is you or <laughs> Vernon, if you know anyone. But, you know, no, uh, but I was chuckling earlier when you started talking about this because I learned about all kinds of new things in sexuality from my children patients. Um, one kid who told me about hypnosex, like, what is ah. hypnosex? So it's a whole 
genre of porn where somebody is hypnotized into engaging in sex acts that they wouldn't normally engage in. Ah. Oh, like, oh, wow. That's, <laughs> did not know of. Uh, That's definitely a fetish. So. That's specific. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's right up there with the, the medical exam porn uh, scenario. Well, that's why I was laughing about sure. you saying that your patients or when you're instructing your students that to get that sexual um, knowledge from their patients, that there can be an uncomfortability. Because what's funny is there is that category in porn, but yet I go see my um, doctor every three months for my prep medication check-in. And it is, I always laugh with her because she says, okay, um, you know, is there anything you want to tell me about your sexual health? And I said, yeah, I'll lay it all on the table for you. This, and you know, I'm not going to bear it all here because some of the listeners to the, this podcast include my parents, but I always tell them, you know, it's on them if they're listening right now. Um, but, you know, I lay out the honest truth of, well, I am single, um, flirty, and yeah, I make wise decisions in my opinion, but I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. But it is, there is sometimes this uncomfortable awkwardness and it's not on my doctor. It's just, I think when you have to, when you lay it out in a medical um, space, it can be different than in, talking, of course, to your friends or in a casual way. So, yeah, I'm glad to know it also exists when you're detailing it to a psychiatrist. Um, but, you know, we are getting closer. We're nearing wrapping up. But do you have another five minutes, Vernon? Is that OK? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, thank you. This is like I can tell you're a psychiatrist because your conversation style just quickly enraptured me. Um, well, I feel you, it, yes. I think I'm not a psychiatrist because I'm not watching the clock. Like, um, we're gonna have to end in a few minutes. <laughs> That's true. They're uh, definitely looking at their time. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a friend who is just ending his residency. He is very into um, learning more about LGBT psychiatry. Um, and he has a very specific psychiatric question for you, which I think I might have to have you break down to the public because I'm trying to understand some of the acronyms here. But, well, first, he says that there was this concept of, is it pronounced egodystonic? Egodystonic. Egodystonic. Okay. So what was or what is egodystonic homosexuality? What is egodystonic homosexuality? What is my friend Anders getting at here? I'm sorry, everyone, but I have to leave you on the edge of your seats. I'm really thirsty for some iced coffee right now. So please head to our Patreon, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash ivory tower boiler room only five dollars a month 
you can listen to this and all of our bonus episodes. We have so many bonus episodes. We have steamy, straight bro, TikTok, cake challenges about their butt that I get into with Dr. Dominic Janes. We talk more about ending the death penalty for sodomy with Dr. Chuck Upchurch. Uh, Mary has all her true crime and academia episodes. I play a guilty pop culture game with Ebony K. Williams. So much on our Patreon. So Dr. Vernon Rosario, thank you for joining. Shout out to the Gay and Lesbian Review who made this connection happen. Um, I love the Gay and Lesbian Review. If you haven't, go to the Gay and Lesbian Review's website. Follow them on Instagram at the GL Review. Vernon has written a lot of pieces, and there's actually one that we include in our show notes. So click it. It's from 1999, and it's all about the medicalization of sexuality. Okay. See you all on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the pink triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopia novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the ivory tower boiler room cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So... If you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, yes, really great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also 
interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>